Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in a technology-centric world and we want to help. What have we got lined up for today, Liz? On this episode of the show, you're going to hear a review of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, one of the favourite books from my own children's childhood, but made into a movie now. And we'll be discussing some recent changes to the National Classification Scheme guidelines. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, demystify it so that you can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing an Australian report from last year about gambling-like elements in video games. Gaming is big business. How big? Stay tuned to find out. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some homegrown Australian research about the harms associated with gambling-like elements in video games. It's timely to do this now because the law has recently been changed based in part on this research. We'll be coming back to that later, but for now, Kim, why'd they do this research? Globally, video games revenue is worth about $160 billion a year, Hmm. and it's growing. It's not stopping anytime soon. Hmm. It's estimated that approximately half of all the video gaming industry's revenue is sourced from actual in-game purchases. Hmm. Yeah, and gambling is closely linked to that idea of in-game purchases, isn't it? Especially, yes, within the what we call loot boxes, the randomization of certain rewards and prizes mm-hmm. to either win an item or get ahead in the game. Yeah. Yeah, we will definitely be discussing that idea a fair bit in this episode. So um, hold that thought. Let's come back to the research. How'd they do it? How'd they go about this? Yeah. So they reviewed a total of 64 research studies on the harms of video games and the gambling-like qualities of video games. Right. So it's another kind of systematic review type thing. It's not just a specific experiment. It's looking at a whole range of results on different studies. And we've talked before about how that's a really strong kind of evidence. And um, anyway, what did they find with this uh, systematic review? The review found consistent evidence that loot box interaction, that is the gambling elements of video games, including viewing, opening, and especially buying loot boxes was associated with problem gambling and internet gaming disorder. Simulated gambling engagement, especially in-game purchasing in social casino type games Mm. online was associated with problem gambling. Mm. Other in-game purchasing and buying, not including just spending on loot boxes or simulated gambling games, but just buying within the game itself was associated with problem gambling. Mm -hmm. In addition, there is evidence that there's an association between loot box buying and increased mental distress and financial harms. Wow. And simulated gambling engagement is associated with internet gaming disorder, mental and emotional harm, and other negative consequences. Other in-game purchasing and buying and internet gaming disorder financial harms, emotional behavioural problems is also seen in teenagers. Mm. The research suggests that teenagers, females, males with other in-game purchases, pay-to-win gamers and people with already a gambling problem are more likely to experience harm. Mm. 
Yeah, well, that's a lot of different kinds of harm that gambling or in-game gambling is associated with. So really worth paying some attention to that, isn't it? Was there anything surprising in these findings to you? How'd they fit with what you already knew about these things? Well, I guess for me, the comment about females having an association was quite interesting. Mm. And I would have thought males would be more associated with the, the gambling aspects, but they specifically found that females were more at risk of experiencing harm through loot boxes themselves. That is really interesting. It does go against the stereotype of the game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. But and they also made various recommendations for harm reduction and regulation of loot boxes, which I think okay. is really helpful yeah. and simulated gambling mm -hmm. and other in-game purchasing centered around protecting the consumer. For mm -hmm. example, creating age restrictions for people under 18, kids, especially spending money on loot boxes and simulated gambling and other purchases in games. Mm -hmm. Also, number two, options for limit setting and self-exclusion, that is setting deposit limits, self-exclusion register, much like when you want to ban yourself from the local casino mm -hmm. or poker machine venue. And then three, making it really obvious, displaying the odds of getting chance-based rewards when you're buying a loot box or right. purchasing something hmm. um, online. Clear labeling of gambling-like products and features in video games and creating awareness for consumers hmm. and the associated potential risks and harms of these products. And then removing and reducing game features that encourage excessive spending and gameplay, such as pay-to-win, super rare items, item selling and trading. And then lastly, providing support, yep. funding services, awareness, education programs, parenting programs, all those important things. Yeah. Do you come across gambling issues much in your practice? Every now and then we get someone who has a problem with sports betting. I had a few during the pandemic where the parents actually went in to their app, downloaded sports bet and used their allowed their child to use their parent ID in order to gamble on games overseas. Okay. I've had people that's another discussion, yes. <laughs> I've had people who are adults who have spent tens of thousands of dollars on loot boxes and in game purchasing. Kids stealing money from credit cards is a very common thing. Yeah. So yeah, I do see it. A lot. It can get financial harms. It can get really troubling, can't it? As with any kind of addiction, just people start doing really troubling things sometimes. Uh, so anyway, there's a few um, recommendations there that you can bring into your practice when you get another one of those kinds of uh, patients, hey? Mm, most definitely. Yeah. And as far as parenting or caring for children, I guess those recommendations are going to help out there too. I think parents just need to be buyer aware, that's for sure. And to just always be conscious that gambling is a problem and potentially quite a big problem in people's lives. And it starts young and it gets you in and um, you really need to be vigilant yeah. about it. I think Australia has a gambling problem and we don't need any more excuses to gamble. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim and from the Australian government report about how to keep children relatively safe as gamers uh, from the gambling-like elements. And we'll be coming back to that when we get to Policy Corner pretty soon. But for now, just some information about the report. It was by Nancy Greer, Kayla Murray-Boyle and Rebecca Jenkinson. 
and the title is Harms Associated with Loot Boxes, Simulated Gambling and Other In-Game Purchases in Video Games, A Review of the Evidence. It was published by the Australian Institute of Family Studies and the Australian Gambling Research Centre in June 2022. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review and Jeremy is going to tell us why Dr. Seuss's The Lorax is recommended for kids aged six and up. Hi, I'm Jeremy Brown and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children aged six and up as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Dr. Seuss's The Lorax is the animated movie of the well-loved children's book by the same name from the 1970s. It tells the story of Ted, a 12-year-old boy living in the treeless world of Needsville. When the girl of his dreams, Audrey, wishes for a real tree, Ted makes it his mission to find one and win her affections. His journey takes him beyond the walls of Needsville and into the dark beyond where the land has been punished by the world's consumerism and living creatures no longer exist. Well, none except for one, the Onceler, who lives amidst the pollution as a punishment for his early mistakes. Unimpressed by Ted's request to find a real tree, the Onceler attempts to dissuade him by telling the story of his youth, his obsession with the truffula tree and the demise of his friendship with the Lorax, the guardian of the forest. The movie has strong themes of environmental disaster and consumerism. There is some violence, including where the Onceler's donkey kicks him and where the Lorax punches the Onceler in the face. You'll also find some verbal violence and threats. There are some scenes in this movie that could scare or disturb children under the age of five. The scenes beyond the walls of Needsville are dark, desolate and scary, and the Onceler himself is scary at first, seen through crooked blinds with yellow eyes and long, hairy fingers. Young children could also find it spooky that there are cameras set up throughout the city through which the mayor watches Ted. This means that objects seem to be watching him. Finally, when the onceler and a baby animal go down the rapids on a bed, they almost go over a waterfall and drown, but are saved at the last minute. The CMA reviewer noted no product placement, sexual references or use of substances, but there is some nudity and some mild-caused language and put-downs that children may imitate, including weirdo, shut up, stupid, and dumb. This movie version of the classic Dr. Seuss story tells a tale of the inevitable outcome of consumerism and deforestation unless people take a stand and make a difference. It may be rather scary for under-fives and may also lack interest for this age group, The main messages from this movie are about conserving our natural world and the dangers associated with materialism. Values that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include caring for the natural world we live in, standing up for what you believe in, and anti-consumerism. This movie also raises some questions that parents might like to discuss with their children, such as, what happened to the onceler once he began to get successful? Could he have had a successful business and still looked after the environment? How? You could also talk about the Lorax's role as the guardian of the forest. Who looks after the forest in our world? Why is it important for people to care about trees in the forest? The Lorax is available on a number of popular streaming platforms and the CMA reviewers recommended it for children 6 and up, parental guidance for 5 years old, but for children under 5, best to find another movie.
There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Jeremy talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, which is a very popular one, by classification or by date added, if you're looking for older or newer stuff. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. We call them golden oldies. The website also has reviews of game style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time for Policy Corner. Liz and I are going to have a look at the changes that were recently made to the classification guidelines based in part on the research we were just discussing. First of all, what exactly are guidelines and where do they fit into the national classification scheme? Well, to answer that question, I have to explain that there are three main components to the scheme. The first one is the Act that the Commonwealth Parliament passed some time ago that basically sets up the machinery for the scheme. Then as part of that Act, they've passed this thing called the Classification Code and that contains all the descriptions of what the different classifications are, what you know, what R18 plus means, what MA15 plus means and so on. And then there's the guidelines and they're probably the sort of closest to the um, action of the three parts, I suppose. And they put flesh on the bones of the code and provide guidelines, exactly what they sound like, for the people who do the classifying. They're much more specific, much more practical than the code, which is more general, I suppose you could say. And just finally, I need to point out there's also uh, various state and territory acts that tell us what the different legal consequences of the different classifications are. So in some states, certain material might be available and not in other states. Like, for example, years ago, this is a bit of an old example now because we don't really have video or DVD rental places anymore. But it used to be that in South Australia, anything R18 plus had to be in a plain wrapper. And in other states, they could have the full promotional material on the wrapper. But in South Australia, there was a rule, you know, if it was R18+, plus, it had to be just a, a plain label. Little things like that. Don't, they don't make a huge amount of difference day to day. But they do exist, so it's worth noting them. What are the game elements that the new guidelines address? There are two new game elements that the new guidelines address. The first one is what they call in-game purchases linked to elements of chance. And... To everybody who hears that, or most people who hear that, they would think, oh, yeah, loot boxes, and that's the main thing that they're referring to, but they have broadened it out. So this includes loot boxes, but it's not limited to them. Now, the purchases can be with real-world currency, including cryptocurrency, or with in-game currency that can be purchased with real-world currency. That's the main thing about those. And then the second element is what they call simulated gambling. And I'll just read out the definition of that. It's interactive activity within a game that A, resembles or functions like a real-world age-restricted betting or gambling service, so it looks and feels and acts like gambling, and B, 
does not provide rewards that can be redeemed for real-world currency or traded to other players in-game for real-world currency. I guess if it could be so redeemed or traded, then it would be real gambling, not simulated gambling. So those are the two aspects of simulated gambling. It looks and feels and acts like gambling, but it doesn't involve real money. Why have they changed the law? It goes back to a review that was carried out a couple of years ago of the whole classification system by a chap called Neville Stevens. So that's why we call it the Stevens Review. He addressed these issues and he said that loot boxes and so on should be PG and that uh, simulated gambling should be MA15+. We'll come back to that a bit later. But anyway, that was where it all started. They refer to community concern about all of this, and that's maybe a bit of an understatement. I think the community is really very concerned, if not up in arms, about gambling and the way that it's uh, finding its way into children's lives. They also looked at the research by the Australian Institute for Family Studies that we discussed earlier and noted that there's clear evidence of harm. And in the explanatory memorandum, which is the document where the government basically explains why they want to pass a piece of legislation, they refer to all three of those. So they refer to the formal review that was done and had come out with recommendations. And they also refer to the general feeling of the community and to the specific research that's been done, all three of those things. Why did they only pick up on these couple of recommendations from Stevens and not the rest? We can never be 100% sure about the reason for things like this. It's got to come down to political expediency because the government is the government and that's how it acts. And if you look at it through that lens, you'd have to say that they've done it precisely because parents are up in arms. They would want to make it a priority because they uh, would be under quite a lot of pressure from their constituents about it, I would expect. How are gambling elements currently handled in the classification system? At the moment, gambling elements are looked at. They can be mentioned in consumer advice, but there's no particular classification requirements to do with them. They're not mentioned throughout the system in the way that, say, violence is or uh, nudity or sexual activity and so on. What do the new guidelines say? The new guidelines say that the classification is a minimum of M for in-game purchases linked to elements of chance or what you and I might think of as loot boxes, but as I mentioned before, it's broader than just that. And a minimum R18 plus for simulated gambling. So that's higher than what Neville Stevens recommended. And there's certainly a, a logic to making it R18 plus for simulated gambling because with real world gambling, we require people to be 18 before they can engage in it. And this is a way of saying, well, this is really no different just because there's no real world currency changing hands. There's that experience of the thrill of risking something for an uncertain reward. And that is what gets people in, in relation to gambling. It's not the money itself. Is there a better way that we could have done this? Well, if it were me, I would have just introduced a whole new element of gambling. They deal with it under the themes heading. Perhaps I should explain that the code refers to violence, as I mentioned before, things like nudity, sexual activity, and then it has this heading of themes, which is pretty much on the same list as all of those things I just mentioned. And themes is a very, very broad and difficult to pin down category. And it feels like gambling is being kind of squeezed in there to me, that if you had a whole new element of gambling that was on the same level as violence, sexual activity, and so on, then it would just fit better and feel like it was being taken more seriously. I would also suggest 
there should be a higher rating for in-game purchases. If you really take the evidence of harm seriously, 15 is too young to allow people to engage in that kind of activity that 18 would make a lot more sense. But look still, it's really good to see the government's doing something about this because it's a really important social problem in our modern world and it looks like it's only going to get worse. So to see the government on the case is uh, really encouraging. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 23. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can leave a comment there. Otherwise, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word, or you can email us at Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction related on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by subscribing to the show on your listening platform and or on Substack. It's worth doing both because on Substack, you get an email when a new episode drops or we have other news for you. And you can also join our listener community. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. Now, listeners, just before we sign off, I wanted to let you know that this is our last episode for the year. It should be dropping on Christmas Eve. So those of you who are celebrating Christmas, hope you have a lovely day. And even if you're not celebrating Christmas, may the 25th be a delightful day for you. We're going to take a couple of weeks break and we'll be back on the 14th of January. So watch out for a new episode then. And then we're going to be going on a slightly different schedule for a little while, which we'll send out a message soon explaining how that's going to work. In the meantime, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hope you've enjoyed the other 22 that we've made this year. And we look forward to bringing you more content and helping you with your family decisions about screens more in the new year. And this, this has been, been the team from Outside the Screen. See you in a few weeks.